You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to PTCE's Pharmacy Connect, a podcast focused on continuing education created by pharmacists for pharmacists. PTCE is the leader in pharmacy and managed care education. In these episodes, listeners will be presented with the most recent clinical updates and strategies for implementing into practice. On this episode of PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast, we welcome back Dr. Jacob Kettle as he reviews challenges with differentiating and managing adverse effects associated with immune checkpoint inhibitors and targeted therapies. Dr. Kettle will help us understand how pharmacists can assist in recognizing and treating therapy-related adverse effects and identify the different challenges in adverse effect identification and management. After listening to this podcast, don't forget to get your continuing education credits at pharmacytimes.org. That's pharmacytimes.org for all your continuing education needs. Here's our host and founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. Pharmacy Podcast Nation, we are back. This is PTCE Pharmacy Connect. I love these podcasts. I've been hearing great things through social media. Thank you so much for tweeting us, sharing these podcasts through Instagram. You can find our handle at Pharmacy Podcast really everywhere. And Pharmacy Times is a champion in helping us develop and uh, distribute content for our pharmacists, continuing education in podcast form. So that if you're walking around, you're driving, you're doing something that you should just be listening. This is a great supplement of education. I'm so excited to welcome back Dr. Jacob Kettle. Welcome back to PTCE Pharmacy Connect. Jacob, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. You are welcome. So we talked about a multitude of different things with optimizing care for patients on immune checkpoint inhibitors, really targeting different combinations of medications last time you were on. And now we're going to get into the strategies for pharmacists' involvement in adverse effect management and really highlighting adverse effects associated with both immune checkpoint inhibitors and targeted therapies. Maybe referring back to some of the information we talked to before, but I'm excited to dive in a little deeper than we, than we were and how pharmacists can assist in recognizing and treating therapies relative to uh, possible adverse effects. And then what are the challenges in adverse effect identification and management? So with that, I'm going to turn it over to you, uh, Jacob, just to give us maybe a, a light refresher, and then we're going to dive into this subject. But yeah, let, let's refresh a little bit about kind of how we got here with targeted therapy. And I think um, just reviewing from our previous podcast, you know, you could broadly divide our therapeutic or systemic therapy options into three buckets, uh, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, and immunotherapy. Uh, chemotherapy, most pharmacists listening to this have at least some familiarity with those drugs. That's the doxorubicin, cyclophosphamides, methotrexates of the world. They've been around forever. But there's been an emergence of two additional treatment modalities, and that's targeted therapy and immunotherapy. Um, targeted therapy kind of became um, prevalent right around the turn of the millennium. We got drugs like rituximab, trastuzumab, imatinib. 
and then we've really seen in the last decade or so an explosion of drugs that target things anywhere from like CD2, HER2, VEGF, EGFR, BRAF, ALK, um, Intrek, KRAS, um, RET. There's a whole host of um, different things that we can have drugs to target. And essentially the concept is developing drugs that take advantage of mutations or amplifications or other drivers that make cancer cells grow and trying to effectively, very precisely, turn those off. And so that's the world of targeted therapy. We also have the world of immunotherapy. This idea of using the immune system to fight cancer is nothing new. Um, but what's been remarkable in the last, again, the last decade, but really more specifically, even the last five or six years, is the emergence of checkpoint inhibitors. And these are drugs like ipilimumab, which is a CTLA-4 inhibitor, uh, or pembrolizumab, nivolumab, atezolizumab. There's a whole host of other ones that fall in the class of PD-1 or PDL one drugs. Uh, and the way these kind of work is, is really restoring the immune system's natural function uh, of eradicating tumor cells. So tumor cells, through multiple different mechanisms, find ways to evade the immune system. And the goal of these checkpoint inhibitors it's to kind of disinhibit the immune system so it will re-engage and act against the cancer. And so those are our three main modalities. Historically, they've all kind of developed in parallel. So now we're moving into this era where we have novel approaches to cancer care that's combining these modalities together. So whether we're putting two immunotherapies together, an immunotherapy and a chemotherapy together, or mostly what we'll focus on today, combining an immunotherapy with the targeted therapy. Thank you for that refresher and pulling back some of the information we talked about in the previous episode. Can you remind us why we use these agents and combinations? Yeah, so I think from a really simplistic practical perspective, um, as remarkable as recent advances in immunotherapy and targeted therapy have been, there's still progress left to be made. Um, especially for certain patients. Maybe the indication for these drugs doesn't affect all risk levels or um, patients without certain biomarkers. So not every patient responds or certain disease states have been really difficult to crack. So, um, you know, maybe all we'd seen was a late line improvement uh, if you use immunotherapy, but it wasn't effective as a single agent up front. Uh, and so it's taken combination to really reshape and establish a new standard of care. Um, and so, yeah, that's the practical reason for all of this is there's room for improvement still with, with monotherapy, but it also turns out there's a great scientific rationale behind this. And this gets really complex uh, really quickly. But um, when we're talking about modulating cellular signaling pathways or manipulating the immune system, the discussion uh, again, is very dynamic. These are extraordinarily complex systems, but it turns out that um, certain combinations of treatments have the type of impact that modulates that tumor microenvironment in such a way that you kind of get a synergistic effect. So adding in a, a targeted therapy, so to speak, with an immune therapy, uh, that targeted therapy not only acts on its intended target, but also helps undo some pathways that are uh, cumbersome for the immune therapy to do its work. So they kind of, again, can work in tandem, not just for additive effects, uh, but also synergistic effects. And the evidence from clinical trials, looking at these combinations, uh, again, we walked through this quite a bit in our uh, previous podcast, but the evidence from the clinical trials shows that 
This is true, not just in the basic science research, but again, translates into actual patient care. And so we've seen these novel combinations have resulted in major breakthroughs um, in diseases like breast cancer, lung cancer, renal cell cancer, endometrial cancer, hepatocellular carcinoma, on and on. Uh, like I said, it's been the combination in many cases that's been necessary to really advance, advance care, or identify a new standard of care. Um, and so these are all advancements that were unattainable with monotherapy, or maybe we just extended the range of, of patients uh, that would benefit. So uh, that, that in a nutshell is, is the rationale behind combination therapy. So what I, when we're listening in, and I'm sure the listeners are thinking of the adverse effect identification and management of, of the therapies and of treatment, what about some of the more common adverse effects that we see with both classes of these agents? Yeah, so I would say uh, one of the comforting things as we've moved into this era of these novel combinations um, is that while we do see the rate uh, and severity of toxicities, it, it does increase. Uh, and then that's, that's pretty much axiomatic just throughout cancer care. When you add drugs together, the more drugs you put together, the more side effects are. So we do see an increase in frequency and severity of, of toxicity with the combinations. But there really has not been the emergence of any new adverse events. And so, uh, you know, no new safety signals. And so in general, when you're using these drugs in combination, uh, you're going to see the exact same side effects you were already accustomed to dealing with um, in the monotherapy setting. So that at least is again somewhat comforting somewhat helpful as you move into new things that you don't have to learn and prepare for an entirely new side effect um but in general with checkpoint inhibitors it's fairly consistent across all the agents there's some differences between ctla4 inhibitors and pd1 inhibitors and if you really want to parse it out pd1 and pdl1 inhibitors there's maybe some background differences but it it's, it's pretty similar across the board uh, these are all Im immune mediated adverse events uh, and so we see things like rash, you know, dermatitis, colitis, hepatitis, pneumonitis, um, endocrine toxicities. And then, you know, if you really want to dig into the research, there's a whole host of additional types of immune mediated, uh, immune mediated adverse events uh, that you can find out there. But again, very consistent um, across these drugs. With the targeted therapy, it is very drug dependent. Um, so you're going to get a very different adverse event profile with VEGF inhibitors and, and even within the class, you might see some differences versus EGFR inhibitors versus HER2 uh, targeting drugs. Very, very dependent on the type of drug and the target you're uh, impacting. I think the big issue when we talk about combination therapy is dealing with uh, overlapping toxicities. And so, you know, one of the great things about using these drugs together, not only are they more efficacious, but they don't necessarily have any severe overlapping toxicities that renders them uh, clinically useless. No, they actually are very tolerable in general, but there are some significant overlapping toxicities, things like rash, diarrhea, increased transaminases, uh, increased transaminases, pneumonitis, endocrine complications, they can often, these types of adverse events can often be caused by either the targeted therapy or the immunotherapy. And so this really becomes the challenge because while these agents might cause a clinically indistinguishable adverse event on presentation, so, 
you know, transaminitis looks like transaminitis. There's nothing on the lab that's going to tell you, oh yeah, this AST is elevated because of this drug, not this drug. Uh, again, they're clinically indistinguishable. Uh, the causative mechanism and the management strategy is entirely different. And I think that's uh, a real key takeaway as we talk about why this is such a challenge is again, they present clinically indistinguishable, but the mechanism that's causing it and the management approach is entirely different. And that really is the central challenge you face because if you're going to maximize therapy, you have to work through this problem. Otherwise, you're going to either abandon a therapy way too early, so you're going to stop taking or dose reduce an effective drug way too soon, or you're going to risk continuing a treatment that has the propensity to cause more adverse events. Um, so that's why it's so difficult. Getting this decision right is imperative to both keeping patients on the right therapy as long as possible, but also making sure you don't give them something that's going to uh, cause further harm. Uh, so again, that is the central piece of this discussion is those overlapping toxicities. That's what's new and what's so complicated in, in dealing with it. Listeners, I want to give you a shout out. You pharmacists are absolutely amazing. And what we've been talking with Dr. Kettle about combinations of different therapies to really give the best route of treatment. Jacob, what are some general management strategies for immune-related adverse events? So the good thing about immunotherapy adverse events is the management strategy is pretty consistent across the board, regardless of the drug we're using. Um, adverse events are pretty much managed with dose interruptions, um, potentially permanent discontinuations, depending on the severity, the toxicity. Uh, and then corticosteroids, predominantly, sometimes other immunosuppressants are used in refractory or, or really severe cases. But it's, it's a really straightforward process. You're going to hold the drug, start steroids, dose kind of depends on severity, monitor for improvement. And upon improvement, you're going to consider a rechallenge um, of that offending agent. A key take home is there are no real dose reductions in the realm of immunotherapy. You either give the full dose of the drug or you discontinue the drug. And that's a real major departure from what we're used to uh, historically in oncology practice, where whether it's chemotherapy or targeted therapy that kind of preceded this immune therapy, your, your dose adjustments were, were paramount. That's how you address toxicity, temporarily held the dose and then dose reduced. So, so it's a big departure in immunotherapy. Uh, just briefly about targeted therapy, it is extremely drug dependent. Every drug has a different approach, but predominantly we're managing this by dose modification. So temporarily holding the drug, then resuming at a lower dose level. Um, and we're going to use multiple pharmacological, uh, use multiple pharmacological interventions. Uh, occasionally that is steroids, but oftentimes it's just routine standard care, lopiramide for diarrhea, something like that. Things we're otherwise pretty accustomed to, to utilizing. So with all these combinations and so many different outcomes per combination, are there guidelines pharmacists can follow for treating adverse effects? Yeah, there's several great guidelines available. Um, I pretty routinely use ASCO, American Society of Clinical Oncology, uh, or NCCN, National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines. They both have uh, well-written, well-referenced, well-published, uh, and, and really um, 
practice friendly guidelines. And so what I find myself using them most often for, I tend to feel like the first step of therapy, you know, which typically is hold therapy um, and start, or, or the first step of management of an immune media adverse event, um, I feel like is usually relatively straightforward. Hold the immune therapy drug, start a steroid. You know, that's the kind of beginning of that puzzle. But I find the guidelines really useful for the additional steps um, you know, what alternative immunosuppressant should I use in a refractory case? What's the steroid taper look like? How long should that steroid taper be? Um, and then I think most importantly is the decision on rechallenge. That's what's really useful out of the guidelines because typically, I mean, the general rule of thumb, severe toxicities, you don't rechallenge. Um, mild to moderate toxicities, you may rechallenge, but there are some caveats in that mix. And so uh, tend to rely on those guidelines fairly heavily for, for that. I mean, this is all uh, way beyond, at least for me, way beyond what I can keep uh, in the permanent memory bank. So I, I lean on those guidelines heavily. Um, for targeted therapy, uh, again, it's very drug specific. So generally my approach there is to, to consult the prescribing information uh, for guidance for whatever particular product we're looking at. Most of the drugs we're using now are relatively new. They don't have any other additional published guidelines in terms of how to dose it other than, you know, what's in the published study or what's in the, the package insert. Okay. But what about strategies? Let's think about different ways of, of putting this together. But what strategies do you recommend when addressing adverse effects? What I kind of think of is imagining a continuous cycle that, Kind of starts with preparing, moves to anticipating, then identifying, then treating, and then adjusting. Um, and so, and that's kind of this continuous cycle that we think through. You want to do all five of those things well uh, in order to adequately address adverse events. So, kind of in that preparing phase, um, this is really about educating providers um, about what adverse events to look for, uh, what to monitor for. So make sure there's that awareness. And I don't just mean, uh, you know, the medical oncologist side, but also nurses, uh, really everybody that comes into contact with the patient, because I think one of the realities is patients do tend to be uh, a little bit resistant sometimes to mention when they're having an adverse event out of fear that, you know, if I talk about the side effect, my doctor is going to stop my treatment. That's a very real fear for a lot of patients. So Making sure we, we spread that awareness throughout every provider, I think, is really useful because you don't really know when that useful piece of information is going to be volunteered. So that widespread education, extremely important. I think developing protocols is really useful. Uh, again, leaning heavily, at least for me, leaning heavily on uh, ASCO and NCCN-based guidelines. Um, but that way, you're establishing a consistent approach. Um, and then also patient education, making sure... Uh, they're aware of what side effects to be looking for and know the importance of volunteering that information. So that preparation piece is critical. That's an ongoing process. The next kind of bucket is the anticipation and identifying of adverse events. So I think it's absolutely critical to always maintain a high index of suspicion, encourage patient reporting as much as possible, asking the patient multiple times, I think is critical, making sure that you've got routine lab and symptom follow-up built in, um, and then always considering um, that you haven't seen every possible adverse event. So always considering something you see may be a rare, unique adverse event of a drug. 
even though it may not be a common event, that doesn't mean it's not possible. So kind of having that perpetual presence that everyone is engaged, watching for these adverse events, uh, and you're not dismissing what could be important information. Uh, and then lastly, the treatment and adjustment phase, uh, you know, especially with immune therapy, you're going to hold the offending agent, start treatment. Uh, but it's the monitoring and recovery phase. So what kind of support are you going to put around the patient to monitor them throughout recovery? Uh, and then a really critical piece of this puzzle is determining the appropriateness of rechallenge. And the guidelines will give you, you know, some good recommendations, but sometimes it's a much more sensitive discussion than that. So even if you feel patients may be really resistant to stopping a treatment due to an adverse event, if they were responding to treatment. So I think that's a really important discussion and, have, and having those uh, plans laid out is really critical. So um, again, that's kind of the cycle to think through. Every site's gonna be different, but those are some tools to kind of start putting thought around uh, and to kind of build out what your monitoring plan is gonna look like. Okay, Dr. Kettle, I'm going to put you on the spot and get a little bit more specific. So are you ready for this? Let's do it. All right. So let's pretend you have a patient with um, like a grade two diarrhea that presents after about three months of these med medication combinations that we've been discussing. Could you walk us through how you would approach and manage these adverse effects? Yeah, no, this is a fabulous question. And I think this is uh, this is one of those topics that's probably best grasped through a case-based approach. So um, let's get a little more grounded, a little less hypothetical. Let's say those two drugs they were using are pembrolizumab and lenvatinib, very common use combination, uh, now recently approved in renal cell carcinoma as well as uh, endometrial cancer. So uh, very useful regimen. Um, and so, uh, Again, this sets up the exact scenario that is so clinically challenging. Both of these drugs can cause diarrhea. The presentation is going to be the same. Um, now, eventually, pembrolizumab diarrhea progresses into more severe colitis if left unmanaged. Doesn't really seem to happen with, with lenvatinib, but the initial presentation is going to look the same. And at a grade two diarrhea, you know, you're probably that's mild to moderate. I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head, but we're talking, you know, somewhere between, I think around four or five additional loose stools per day is, is what we're talking about here. Uh, so it's going to look the same with either agent. You're not going to get this massive clue at this stage of, of, of what the cause is. So both drugs cause diarrhea. The clinical presentation is identical, but the management is entirely unique. So you don't want to manage a lumbatinib diarrhea like it's a pembrolizumab diarrhea or vice versa. And if you pick wrong, you're going to either be, you know, stopping or interrupting or dose reducing an agent that's not the offending drug way too early, uh, or you're going to be continuing, um, and maybe it's an and or, you're going to be continuing a drug that's going to worsen adverse events. So getting those outcomes, uh, you know, we're all really excited about these new combinations because they do produce better results, but getting that uh, outcome is incumbent upon a, a really solid management. So this is a really tricky clinical scenario. So again, I like to think of, so in this case, lenvatinib has a rate of diarrhea around 50% when given as a single agent. Pembrolizumab's in the range of 20%, but actually less than 2% of those uh, are actually that more severe colitis picture. So with this in mind, our, our early inclination would be in this case that lenvatinib is maybe the more likely cause. 
Uh, again, not able to rule anything out completely, but that's where we're leaning, at least on the outset. Our next step that we can consider uh, is taking a look at chronological patterns. So uh, typically drugs will have a relatively consistent median time to onset of adverse events. Um, it's, it's especially true with immunotherapy. Um, these adverse events tend to occur in a relatively predictable chronological pattern. So again, in this specific case, the diarrhea that's caused by linbatinib has a median time to onset around 12 weeks, so about three months. Uh, and Keytruda has a median time to onset of diarrhea of about 14 weeks. So unfortunately, and this is again, pretty common, um, the chronological pattern here doesn't really give us much of, um, doesn't really give us a whole lot to lean on um, in this specific case, because this specific patient, uh, they're right in that window. They've been on therapy for three months, um, and that's the common onset time for both of these drugs. So we don't get a whole lot to glean from that, but this can be in certain circumstances a really useful tool. I will say it's, it's important to remember that although some adverse events do have a predictable timeline, you can't just uh, wipe it off, off the consideration. So it's great for helping um, stratify what's most likely in your kind of risk differential, uh, but it shouldn't be used to totally um, eliminate something from consideration. Your third step in this puzzle is to try to take advantages of differences in pharmacokinetics or differences in pharmacology between uh, the agents involved. And so by this, I mean, we can expect toxicities for drugs with shorter half-lives in general to resolve much quicker than toxicities caused by drugs with long half-lives. Um, and in this case, there's a huge difference between the half-life for linbatinib and pembrolizumab, and this is pretty common. Small molecule inhibitors like linbatinib typically have half-lives measured uh, in hours. In the case of linbatinib, its half-life is around a day. Uh, and monoclonal antibodies tend to have half-lives that are measured uh, in days or maybe even in weeks. So in pembrolizumab's case, its half-life is about three weeks long. And so if we temporarily hold held treatment um, and then reassess the toxicity, we can get some valuable information. If that side effect improves after just a couple of days, we can be pretty confident that linbatinib, uh, we can be pretty confident that linbatinib is the cause. Uh, but if symptoms worsen or don't improve at all, uh, then we're gonna be much more inclined to be thinking that pembrolizumab is the culprit here. Um, Unfortunately, this isn't always applicable if somebody presents with a really severe toxicity, uh, particularly when we're talking about immunotherapies in the mix, you're not gonna have the luxury of just holding and watching. You're gonna need to start steroids right out of the gate. Uh, but for those with milder toxicities like this case, this can be a really useful tool to help tease out what the causative agent is. Um, and then step four, we can take advantage of response to steroids. So. Uh, for the most part, immunotherapy toxicities are almost universally going to respond uh, to some type of immunosuppression. Typically, that's going to be a corticosteroid, whereas for the most part, you're not going to get that same type of response with targeted therapy. So again, in this case, we would expect diarrhea caused by pembrolizumab to respond to uh, a course of prednisone. That would not be the case with linbatinib. So that would really help give us a clear, concise answer if they responded um, to steroids that really gives, you know, is the giveaway that we're dealing with a pembrolizumab-induced um, side effect. Uh, again, many times this is very useful. Sometimes it's not. 
Uh, pneumonitis would be a good example. If pneumonitis is caused by a targeted therapy, uh, in most cases or many cases, you might use uh, glucocorticoids to manage that, just like you would pneumonitis caused by um, uh, an immune checkpoint inhibitor. So it's not always useful, but it can be a really effective tool. Um, so that would be kind of the stepwise approach approach that I would go through looking at the patient. I would look at um, the baseline frequencies of these adverse events in monotherapy. Um, in this case, I'd have I'd kind of start leaning towards lenvatinib. I'd see if I could take anything uh, out of a chronological pattern. In this particular case, not much I can get out of that. Um, and then we kind of get into where we're starting to have some intervention. Um, if I could get away with it because the toxicity was mild, I think my first step is usually going to be just hold both therapies for a couple days uh, and, and monitor that toxicity and see if things improve. Again, that strategy really takes advantage of the fact that uh, the small molecule inhibitors uh, now wouldn't be the case if you're using um, there are targeted therapies and we use them in combination that are monoclonal antibodies. Bevacizumab is a good example of that. Um, that's a monoclonal antibody. So you don't have that to rely on. But if we're using a small molecule inhibitor, that gives us the opportunity to um, take advantage of those of pharmacokinetic differences. And if the response to that short interruption is, you know, things improve, uh, then that gives us a really good indication that it's that drug with the shorter half-life that's the culprit. If they don't improve after a couple of days, again, very likely to blame we're going to be shifting to the think that the causative drug is uh, the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And then lastly, uh, relying on response to steroids. And you can kind of take those four steps, put those pieces together. Uh, and, and for the most part, you're going to get a really reasonable um, uh, prediction as to what the causative agent is. You also can't discount most of these symptoms can be caused by a whole host of other causes. So, uh, and that's a, an entirely different discussion, uh, but it is something that kind of clouds the picture. But for the most part, following these four steps, that will give you a pretty good indication uh, of what the causative agent is and will give you the guidance as to far as, um, you know, how to go forward with management. Here's where the individual pharmacist experience really comes into play in understanding treatment modalities and combinations of treatments and how it's affected and impacted your specific patient. This is so important. And I love hearing from you, Dr. Kettle, in really sharing a multitude of different combinations. What are some of the challenges pharmacists have with management of these agents within health systems per se? Yeah, I, I think there, there's more to it than just uh, managing two different drugs. Um, there is a, a different layer of, you know, again, health system kind of complications or operational or logistic complications. So um, and a couple of examples of those I would give uh, would be one coordination of care. Um, we used to live in a world where patients either were getting IV therapy or oral therapy. We really didn't cross pollinate very often, but now patients uh, are fairly routinely getting drugs that are provided by two different pharmacies, the infusion pharmacy and a specialty pharmacy, or, uh, and sometimes that specialty pharmacy is an unaffiliated pharmacy. Um, so we've got this new mix where drugs are coming from multiple sources. The regimens are more complicated. Uh, and this, 
is another layer of increased uh, complexity uh, that makes it particularly difficult to ensure adherence um, or it, adhere to the precise dosing and uh, guideline. That can be quite the challenge when you have this kind of bifurcation of where drugs are coming from. So that's one additional layer of complication. Um, and I, I think another one I would add is just that monitoring um, and management of adverse events uh, when we're in this setting is by far more complicated now than it was with monotherapy. Uh, but in general, uh, we're dealing with, for the most part, the same number of resources. Uh, the infrastructure the facility hasn't changed a ton and that uh, increased complexity, uh, increased uh, need for monitoring and engagement has to be met with, um, you know, novel solutions, uh, creative ways to kind of improve our efficiency um, to rise to that challenge. So uh, it's not just on the level of managing those individual patients with a new regimen, but there are also, again, as I said, there are some bigger picture complications to the puzzle as well. All right. So focusing in on your experiences, specifically, Dr. Kettle, what strategies have you used in your own practice to overcome some of these challenges? I think, truthfully, a lot of this comes down to education and communication, um, as well as cooperation. So, um, again, and we kind of talked about it um, with kind of the five-step process, but ensuring everybody has a good awareness. So making sure that uh, whether it's our specialty pharmacy team or infusion pharmacy team, uh, everybody has a good awareness of what side effects to be aware of, uh, making sure those communication lines are open, um, that we know how to communicate with one another. And um, it's not just that tight niche group that's uh, you know, infusion pharmacy and the med onc doc um, or the medical oncologist um, is much broader than that. Uh, we have to have a good communication and cooperation strategy between specialty pharmacy, infusion pharmacy, the medical oncologist, maybe some supporting uh, referral sources, pulmonologists, endocrinologists. Uh, I think those are the key pieces um, is just building those bridges so that there's lots of people engaged in patient care. The other piece uh, that's really critical to build out um, is whoever is monitoring the patient, whether that's a nurse making a phone call, especially pharmacists making a phone call. If they do identify a potential issue, you want that to trigger a, a response from everybody. You don't want that to just be a note that just ends in the EMR and kind of goes off into the ether. You want to make sure folks are engaged and responsive to any of those early clues. That tends to be an overriding theme. If you identify adverse events and address them earlier, you're far, far better off uh, than letting uh, too much time pass uh, and the adverse event getting worse. So I think it is, uh, again, all comes back to establishing that culture of cooperation, um, strong streams of communication and good education among all parties. Dr. Kettle, this has been an amazing conversation and a follow-up to your first and very much appreciate your insights. Want to end in just with the same general question we did last time, which was what would you say is the single most important takeaway for our pharmacists listening in? Oh man. Um, I would probably, <laughs> 
I probably just close with this. This is a really remarkable time. Uh, I feel grateful and humbled and blessed every day uh, to have a chance to practice in the middle of this emergence of new therapies. So um, I've been doing this for about 15 years. I remember when I started, um, many disease states had a real dearth of options. Um, we've gone past that for the most part into an er era where uh, we have a multitude of options in a whole host of disease, of disease states. Uh, this presents challenges. Uh, it, it's complicated and difficult to learn how to manage uh, adverse events. It's very cumbersome. We didn't get into it today, but another piece of this, it's very cumbersome to make clinical decisions. How do you pick a regimen when you have five different choices that are all somewhat reasonable? Uh, you know, that risk benefit analysis becomes more complicated. So we're living in a very complicated world, but uh, again, what a gift it is to, <laughs> in a way, these are such wonderful problems to have and such um, a wonderful place to be, to be navigating these waters uh, where we have such a host of unique options. Uh, our patients are depending on us to figure it out. So as much as some days it's incredibly daunting, stressful, overwhelming to be dealing with, uh, you know, every every day you kind of feel like, all right, I'm, I'm getting a handle of this. There's a new regimen. There's a new something, new data that, that changes the landscape. But um, our, our patients are depending on us to find out how to navigate it and to stay diligent um, and stay engaged and willing to do what it takes to, to move that needle forward. So uh, again, I'm incredibly blessed and encouraged and excited to be able to practice in this time. And what keeps me motivated is just the promise we have to deliver all of these wonderful resources to find the ways to use them as effectively as possible and move patient care forward. So affect those individual patient lives, improve their outcomes. It's a tremendous opportunity for our patients and you know, for the profession of pharmacy, we're needed now as more than ever um, to help deliver on that. Because again, these are, these are um, very complex problems that we deal with. Jacob, I could not agree more with you. And I thank you for your insights and the intelligence in this episode. Very important that pharmacists are educating and helping other pharmacists. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to PTCE's Pharmacies Connect podcast. We appreciate the time that you've taken with us. We know how important it is. For more information, be sure to visit pharmacytimes.org. Once again, that's pharmacytimes.org. Or follow pharmacytimes.org and Pharmacy PTCE Connect on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram at pharmacytimesce for continuing education, for the latest updates on continuing education um, activities. Or you could go to Google and put in Pharmacy Times CE or PTCE Pharmacy Connect. That's PTCE Pharmacy Connect to access all of the podcast continuing education content. And we thank you so much, pharmacists, pharmacy technicians, a shout out to you as well for all that you do for our communities and for your patients. And with that, we'll see you soon. Thanks for tuning in to the PTCE Pharmacy Connect podcast. Your feedback is important to us. Please share with us your thoughts on this episode and other topics you'd like to learn about. Go to pharmacytimes.org forward slash contact and send us a message. 
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.